Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. With me is my usual co-host for what is Episode 15 of the podcast, retired Navy Captain, Intel Officer, Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief for Proceedings Magazine. Bill, how are you? Ward, victory begins at the Naval Institute. It sure does, does and the victory begins with the Naval Institute Proceedings Podcast. Um, so um, we'll put a call out, as we have in recent weeks, for folks to attend the West Conference coming up very quickly. It is February 6th, 7th, and 8th are the dates, I believe, right? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of that week. Yep. At the San Diego Convention Center, active duty, get in free. Um, and we're having a lot of, as is the usual thing at AFSIA, USNI West, great panels about topics of the highest, most relevant uh, stuff going on in the Marine Corps, Navy, and Coast Guard. Service chiefs, as far as the eye can see, uh, we're doing awards. There's a great cocktail party on Tuesday night for the membership, which is always, it's like the Vanity Fair party. It's really super VIP situation. So if you're a member in the greater San Diego area, you're going to want to come out to that as one of your benefits of membership. If you're not a member, become a member before West and come to this party. You're not going to, going to want to miss it. It's really the social event of the season it's in San Diego. It's an event not to be missed. Not to be missed. So all that's happening at West uh, coming up in a few weeks. Um, tomorrow we're going to CSIS for the Maritime um, Security uh, Brief with General Neller, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. We're very much looking forward to that. Uh, so if you're in the D.C. area, swing by CSIS. It starts at 9 o'clock. Um, those are always very cool events. Um, and what else do we have happening? So a couple other things about West. Uh, this year's focus is on the high-end threat, the high-end fight. How does the uh, how do the sea services uh, fight, survive, you know, and dominate uh, to victory in a, in a high-end fight with a near-peer competitor or a peer competitor? So uh, that is going to be a, a you know, Difficult topic. A lot of people are going to, you know, opine about uh, capabilities that we need, uh, about uh, doctrine and tactics. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's an entirely different focus than the Navy and the Marine Corps have had uh, in the post 9-11 world. Right. Uh, this isn't fighting ISIL and Al Qaeda in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is we're talking about the possibility of fighting, you know, perhaps the Chinese in the South China Sea, perhaps the Russians in the Baltic or the Black Sea area. Uh, perhaps the, you know, an, an upgunned Iranian threat in the Strait of Hormuz. So, you know, these are these are serious topics, and uh, and it's also a topic we know that all the service chiefs want to want want to get into. Uh, so we just heard uh, one of the uh, Marine Corps uh, uh, panelists that's going to come is uh, Lieutenant General Walsh. He is the uh, the head of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command down at Quantico. He's going to be the Marine Corps representative on the the high-end fight panel uh, i think on that tuesday morning so kind of kicking things off uh should be a great show out at west all right the, the, you know and, and the best part of these panels um is the fact that there's q a right and and so um it's not just uh these subject matter experts and these cognizant authorities lecturing uh you know a one-way transmission it is also uh, there's a Q and A part where where it can get pretty pretty sporty, but if you know the right people are in the room, it can really 
push out the, 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 the discussion in a way that's very productive. This very much is in keeping with the Naval Institute's mission. So uh, if you're a smart guy or girl in the greater San Diego area who has something to say about the subjects on the itinerary, you can go up usni.org and on the events uh, uh, uh Part of the the vertical nav, you can find the agenda uh, and see who's talking and when and that sort of thing. And it's uh, as usual going to be a fantastic um, uh, thing. So let's talk Coast Guard for a second. Um, we have uh, we've we're chatting before the show, and uh, we we don't like to give short shrift to the Coast Guard. Um, and uh, we do have a theme issue, uh, you know, coming up in a few months and, and we'll, we'll deal specifically with those topics at that time. But in the meantime, this month we have a, a, an article that has generated uh, some interest. So Bill, why don't we talk about that for a second? Yeah. So we just had our monthly editorial board meeting and uh, we, uh, you know, always a great conversation and, and people who uh, aren't aware with the, about the editorial board. Uh, we have uh, senior enlisted all the way up to, uh, you know, O sixes. Uh, Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard represented uh, active duty on the on the editorial board. It's a focus group for us. They read every feature article that's going to go in uh, proceedings. Uh, and so we had a great discussion. And then after the meeting was over, we always have kind of a free play of what's playing within the sea services uh, from their perspectives. And so Holly Harrison, captain uh, who's ever at Coast Guard headquarters, she passed on a couple of uh, interesting tidbits. One is that uh, Admiral Zukunft, the uh, Coast Guard Commandant, is coming up on the end of his tenure as the Commandant. And uh, they're expecting the, the name of the new Commandant of the Coast Guard will come out of the White House uh, any day now. Could be could be the, later this afternoon. So expecting a, a new Commandant to be announced by the White House. Uh, and she also mentioned that the article in uh, Proceedings in January written by uh, Coast Guard Chief Bosun's mate Philip Null, which is titled "Don't Micromanage the Response Boats," that uh, Errol Zukunft read this article and he took it into an all-flag officer conference uh, of the Coast Guard, and he said, "Hey, we got a problem here. You know, this chief has written this great piece about, you know, command and control of response boats and how we need to get that back in the hands of the on-scene commander, which oftentimes in the in the Coast Guard is a chief or a senior chief who's out there responding to a search and rescue, life and death situation. And there has been a tendency in the Coast Guard with some of their um, changes in C2 structure to to start to micromanage some of those operations from uh, district sectors and Coast Guard uh, sector headquarters. And so the, the commandant, you know, this is a great example of proceedings impact. The commandant took this article written by a chief and uh, and gave it to everybody in, in the the flag and SES community in the Coast Guard and said, hey, what are we going to do to to get this back to right? Which was great. So that was a nice nice piece. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out to um, the general prize essay contest uh, we had, which was uh, the due date was 31 December. It is always the most prestigious of our many uh, essay contests each year. Goes back over 100 years. Uh, and, and some pretty amazing people have won it over the years. Admiral, you know, Fleet Admiral Ernie King when he was Lieutenant Ernie King for yeah. one. Uh, so a lot of, yeah, a lot of impressive authors over the years. Uh, and we just did the, the essay contest voting uh, with the board today. And the winner of uh, this year's contest is Captain Dale Relog, who is the N2N6 at Pack Fleet. Uh, he was the second place winner last year. 
second place was Lieutenant J.G. Daniel Stephanus, who is on a Fibron staff down at uh, Little Creek. Uh, and Daniel won first prize last year. Uh, and then third third prize is uh, Lieutenant Brendan Cordial, who was a guest on the podcast just a few weeks ago, maybe two months ago. Um, and so they've all written you know, a really tight shot pattern about the the current state of the Navy, the problems uh, that the Navy and and how to you know what to do about them from slightly different perspectives, um, and some might say, well, this is rigged, um, but I, I assure you, 96 essays, um, and they're all judged in the blind. Uh, we only have one person on our staff who knows who the authors are until we, you know, as as Johnny Carson used to do, we'll you know open the envelope, right? Carnac. And uh, and that's after the after the um, the voting is done, and uh, there was a pretty uh, you know, all the members of the editorial board today were just in in unison about how um, impactful an article Dale Relog's piece uh, is, and so we look forward to getting that in print, and that should be in the all three of them should be in the April issue of Proceedings. So, just to double click on on the what you just mentioned in terms of who won the general prize essay contest, what their profiles are, you can see. And also uh, Chief Boston's mate, Philip Null, in the issue that you pointed out, um, don't micromanage response boats. So we've said it on the show before, but let's say it again, that these are great examples of the efficacy and what differentiates Naval Institute membership from any other professional association you could be part of as a member of the sea services, Coast Guard, Navy, Marine Corps. Now, as we've said before on the show, the proceedings, any of the USNI.org products are as good as the participants. And we keep our finger on pulses. We're, we have our networks. We're out and about. Uh, at conferences and other things in and around D.C. and other military centers of excellence. But we very much are the shepherds of the independent forum, and the independent forum belongs to those who are out there doing it. People in the profession writing about the profession for others in the profession. To make it better. Amen. Right? And so um, these examples that you've just mentioned are perfect representations of this so if you're out there i'm going to get all npr on it if you're out there listening to this podcast and you're not a member of the naval institute think about being a member we bring great content month and month out with proceedings bill's team does it on an increasingly daily basis with proceedings today and the blog sam legron and his team are out there breaking news literally on a daily basis we got the press downstairs twice a year with 80 titles that are everywhere from reference documents or reference uh, materials like the Blue Jackets manual to the best literary fiction about the profession that you've ever read. You know, this is happening all the time, but it's only possible because of the efforts on those who deign to be members. So just a little call to action. It's never been easier to be a member. Um, our product suite in the years to come is going to get more and more, more and more better, um, more digital, more um, powerful, powerful, more ubiquitous. So come aboard, and if you're already a member, thank you. Don't forget to re-up when you when you when your time comes. But if you're not a member, 
think about it and go up usni.org uh, to become on the a membership member. tab. Yeah, and it's it's super easy to become a member, and it's uh, sixty five dollars for uh, for print and thirty nine dollars for a digital membership, and that gets you full access to all usni.org, including the digital archives of Proceedings Magazine from eighteen seventy four, that first issue that Stephen B. Luce uh, contributed to um, till now. So, you know, each and every month, Bill's team assembles this fantastic magazine that we love that's unlike any other called Proceedings, but that's only part of what the Naval Institute brings to bear. All right? So, uh, if you're not a member, please consider becoming a member. All right, Bill, why don't we introduce our uh, our guest? Yeah, so today with us is uh, Captain Will McGee. He's a Marine Corps intelligence officer stationed with the 2nd Marine Division. Uh, he wrote an essay called, uh, that's in the January issue of uh, Proceedings, called The Exercise Has No Clothes. Um, and it was the third prize winner in the 2017 uh, Marine Corps Essay Contest. Uh, so congrats on, uh, on being a winner, Will, and for getting uh, published in Proceedings. And if you would, just uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on down at uh, Camp Lejeune today and what your article's about. Hey, thanks a bunch, guys, for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Um, what's going on in Camp Lejeune today? You know, pretty much uh, standard business day, just doing, you know, Intel products for the G2. Um, and, yeah, my article was about the um, some of the flaws I've seen and some of the exercises I've participated in over the last two and a half years. So tell us a little bit about your career. Um, you're a graduate of the, the Naval Academy, beat Army. Um, 2013, and then what, what happened after that? Yeah, so I was selected as the uh, Nolan Scholar to the University of Cambridge. So I went over to Cambridge for a year and did a uh, Master's of Philosophy in Modern European History. Uh, did that, came back stateside, went to the basic school. Uh, at the basic school, I selected ground intelligence as a uh, MOS. So just kind of as a sidebar, I'm not doing soldier intelligence, but uh, just to explain how kind of the Marine Corps career process works as opposed to the Navy, uh, we have, we started specialists, we have four intelligence disciplines, signals intelligence, ground intelligence, air intelligence, and counterint slash human. Um, and then as a, you go into that as a lieutenant, spend your first tour within that MOS, and then graduate to become what's called a MAGTAF intelligence officer um, later on in your career. So I selected ground intelligence. I went to the infantry officers course, the scout cyber unit leaders course, and the ground intelligence officers course. Uh, Finished up with that pipeline and arrived at the Second Marine Division, uh, where I did <clears throat> the math exercise in 2016, and I was a CG's briefer for uh, six months. I then moved over to Second Marine Regiment, uh, did the pre-deployment workup with them, deployed as part of the Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force um, 17.1 and 17.2, um, and came back was with 2nd Marine Regiment for um, about six to seven months and moved up to the division two months ago. So I'm back at the Division G2 now. Hey, where, 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 did that, where did that special MAGTAF deploy to, that 17 one 17-2? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So uh, we deployed to – so the unit was based in Moron, Spain, but we had spokes in Sigonella, Sicily, and Djibouti. So for my deployment, I was down in Djibouti for the first three months um, on a debt down there, supporting some operations in the area. 
then we moved back to then I moved back to Marone where I was there for three months. But about three months, I spent three weeks over in Italy um, for a detachment. We stood up there uh, for some operations we were supporting in the area. So j- just to back up, because I'm fascinated by your Cambridge experience, um, what was your major at the academy? Yes, sir. So I I was an honors history major, um, and I studied I was studying uh, actually. South African history, that was kind of my area of focus, and South African history in the British school system. And then the Naval Academy has a, you know, a program where um, you can compete for various international scholarships, uh, one of which being the Nolan Scholarship. Uh, Mr. Nolan was a former Marine who endowed a, uh, two years of funding for a Naval Academy graduate Marine selectee to go to Cambridge uh, to study to get a master's degree. So. Uh, went through the Naval Academy, you know, did all right in school, got selected for that. Uh, went over to the U.K. for a year, came back a year early, and uh, started TBS. So you, you have a master's in philosophy from Cambridge? Yes, sir. It, so uh, I'll caveat that to say master's of philosophy, that's like uh, saying a bachelor of science. Um, philosophy is in, it's in humanities, so it's really a master's in history. I don't know too much about um, really any philosophy. Okay. Okay. But, but, but suffice us to say, Ward, that uh, Will did much better at the boat school than you or I did. Yes, which yeah. isn't saying much. <laughs> um, so, uh, Will, in, so just so the audience uh, knows, so Will's article starts on page 54 of the January issue of the magazine. Um, the, the one line that jumped at me right off the bat is this one um, where you're talking about the current exercises and you say, these exercises usually pit Marines against Treasure Coast, quote-unquote. That, the quotes are mine. Um, uh, these exercises usually pit tr- uh, Marines against Treasure Coast enemies who follow outdated and simplistically applied doctrine. Um, so let, let's, have, let's use that as a stepping-off point for the discussion. Um, what exactly are you referring to there? Well, so... One of the issues I, I think really emerges when you actually get deep into the weeds of these exercises is that, you know, a lot of the, so you think about another country, right? You know, a, a nation will have um, an armed force, an arm, you know, armed forces that are um, built and developed based upon, you know, the, the nation's culture, geography, and, uh, you know, background, right? So you can't really take a false fictional scenario, build a false fictional army, and expect for that army to really be a sort of intellectually rigorous um, entity within the exercise, something that can really stand stand up to a, you know, intelligence officer, intelligence analyst looking at it and trying to thoroughly understand how it works to the system. Typically with these exercises, you know, we'll use the Treasure Coast scenario, which is a, a fictional region overlaid on the east coast of the United States with uh, fic- fictional background documentation that's, you know, really, really not too thorough or, or detailed. So it's pretty difficult for um, someone who's, you know, really sitting and going down through every line, uh, trying to understand every part of how the enemy system works to, to come to make sense of it and make some really rigorous assessments uh, when the information that they're working with is, is rather poor. So, Will, truth in advertising, uh, I'm a retired Navy intelligence officer and 10 plus years ago on the staff of what's now Cargo 4, uh, then it was Commander Strike Force Training Atlantic, the uh, exercise scripting team that scripted the Treasure Coast scenario belonged to me. Uh, <laughs> so 
Uh, so you're throwing barbs. This shows a little bit about the open forum, the fact that we took your article and, and we published it anyway, even though I was like, I don't agree with this. Um, but but I, I, a lot of the stuff that's in here, uh, you know, the criticisms, um, I, I think absolutely true that it's very difficult to build the depth of of an exercise scenario that matches anything that you could get in terms of depth of a real world problem. Like, you know, you can study Iran, you can study the South China Sea region, you can study the Baltic uh, fleet region, uh, you can study what's happening in the Black Sea region. And, and there's, you know, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, half the, half the, uh, the internet is, uh, you know, is a source out there, right? And with a fake false scenario overlaid with synthetic geography on the East Coast, it's very difficult to build that level of depth, right? Um, the staff that I had at the time, uh, I left there in 2008, uh, we, we endeavored to add uh, texture to that, to that scenario. And we also endeavored to add um, real-time scripting capability. So as a and, – and for us, it was specifically we were scripting – uh, Navy strike group, expeditionary strike groups, or carrier strike group exercises going through their COM2Xs or JTFXs, and and they had training objectives, and as as they would, you know, succeed in those, we could make the the Garnetians or the Amberlandians, we could make them do things and react in ways that would press pressure the strike group or pressure a, a particular warfare commander to have to respond to, a, you know, an attack here or an attack of this this type. Uh, and so that was what we were trying to do anyway. But it sounds like, you know, the, the scenario maybe has gotten worse or isn't, isn't all that intellectually stimulating and doesn't provide that kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, challenge to, you know, you're writing from the Marine, Marine Corps perspectives. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing, because you and I are both very literate in um, the, uh, I mean, I'd like a nickel for every time I've bombed BT-11 or BT-9. Right. You know, um, and you start to get, you can actually, because of the constraints of airways and vacapes and all of these things, there are only so many ways you can skin the cat, right? right. Um, so th that allows us to be a little cynical. But, um, you know, Will's talking about a MEF construct. And, and just to, again, as a scene setter, some of the other stuff that you write here, Will, you you do say, to in your defense against Bill here defending his uh, legacy, no scenario with a synthetic enemy, no matter how detailed, can truly replicate the depth and complexity of information available for a real opponent, right? So that's a nice sort of uh, caveat. Um, the other thing I want to point out and then get Will back in the mix here is the paragraph on page 56 towards the bottom of the left column. It says, without better information, all that can be expected is for an analyst to, quote, turn the map around, end quote, and say how they would behave if they were the enemy using experiences gained at Marine Combat Training Basic School Infantry Officer Course. And I love this sentence. Such thinking is known formally as, quote, the mind projection fallacy, end quote, an error of logic no analyst should ever be asked to commit. I think that's a that's a key sentence there. Um, so let's dig a little deeper on your experiences with the mind projection fallacy, Will. Well, if I could back up just a second and uh, speak to the earlier comment about the um, COM2X and Karis Rick group. You know, I think it's, you know, so if you look at, and this is kind of an outsider looking in as a Marine Corps officer who hasn't done uh, a MEU and has, you know, my only experience on a ship was a month during my uh, midshipman summer cruise. But I'd imagine it's fairly, you know, there, 
take an airplane for example, right? An airplane can fly at a specific dis- can fly a specific distance. It can fly a specific speed. It has certain weapons, and it has almost like a very mathematically precise effect that that each aircraft can have, right? So if you look at a, a scenario that's designed for more of a platform based um, a platform based tr- training environment. I think the Treasure Warfare, the Treasure Coast um, region scenario kind of can make a little bit more sense. The issue for me as an intelligence officer is trying to understand the background information that goes um, beyond those very sort of mathematically defined, precise uh, scenario, er, capabilities, right? You know, you can say that there's an, an armored division, um, a you know, mechanized infantry division. You can say that it has, let's say, 200 T-90s and you know, 50 BDRMs or whatever, and, you know, th- those all have specific meanings. The problem is there's there's really a lack of information in all these scenarios about the intangible factors that go beyond the capabilities, you know, uh, looking at the morale of the individuals, you know, how often have they been fed, what's the temperature, have they been out in the field for three to four weeks, what's truly their combat effectiveness. If you don't have any of the information uh, on those sort of intangible factors, you really can't understand the mindset of the opponent that you're fighting or how the opponent's system truly functions uh, as, as one whole entity. You know, I can understand, for example, and I, again, I'm, I'm speaking outside of my lane of expertise here, but if you're the commanding officer of a carrier strike group and you're concerned about a specific missile system or, you know, um, uh, let's say, you know, a, a submarine that can be, you know, enemy submarine or an enemy ship that has like a mathematically defined um, capability. capability. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like that's <clears throat> there's really no further uh, information behind that that's really necessary. But on the ground side, when you're looking at um, you know a number of of humans engaged in a difficult you know complex environment, uh, you just need a little bit more information before you can understand the. Um, truly understand how the enemy system works. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And, you know, it, it's interesting, back in uh, 2006 when I arrived at, at Strike Group 4, and w- uh, at the time, uh, Navy uh, expeditionary, so so uh, Fibron exercises, right, with a, with a MU on board, um, would, would go down off of North Carolina, and the Navy had one scenario and was fighting its scenario at sea, and the Marines had a completely different tra- training scenario. So the Marines weren't using the Treasure Coast. Uh, the Navy was. Uh, it was uh, it was a fairly two-dimensional sort of uh, scenario at that time. And, and we had meetings with folks from um, Second Mardiv and um, you know Marfor Lant uh, to talk about how do we how do we plus up this scenario so that it's better for the Marine Corps, so that the Navy and Marine Corps are fighting one scenario during. A, um, uh, a a mu fibron exercise, right? And so that was accomplished. We were we were able to get to that point. But it sounds from your perspective like that on the marine side, on the ground intel analysis, the the Treasure Coast understanding of ground forces, it, it's still really two dimensional. It's very very you know paper thin. Well, so I, when you said that, well, I I was sort of had this mental uh, image of. Uh, NFL analysts talking about going against a defender who was hurt, right? So, so there's a basic capability of a defensive back, but what you want to exploit are the matchups, right? Uh, and, and that's where um, teams win. So what you're talking about, if you know that the enemy has been in the field long and they're not fed and the logistics chain has been 
impaired and and so there are certain things you can do against that um that are are very much part of how you would fight a ground war right i mean using the football analogy uh like you said i think the issue is that the, the scenario is really paper thin um, to use to go back to the football analogy, you know, you can say that you have a lineman that weighs 250 pounds. He can accelerate zero to 60, or you know, he can do a 100-yard dash in, you know, X number of seconds. He can bench press this. He can squat that. What you really don't understand is how committed is he to the game when it gets to, you know, halfway through the fourth quarter and they're down by three points. Is he really going to commit, or is he going to hold back? All the stuff that from the ground side, the ground intelligence side that we the information that we truly need to inform the commander's understanding of the environment and build his estimate, a lot of that stuff is missing. And it's really crucial in terms of driving the commander's decision of, you know, should I attack at this location versus that location? Or, you know, what's the best way to achieve the effects I need to um, achieve the end state? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I will say uh, for those in our audience who aren't familiar with uh, East Coast training and um, there, for the Navy side, you know, there are certain, as, as you said, Ward, there are certain bombing ranges. There are a couple down near Jacksonville area. There's a couple in North Carolina and a couple in uh, Virginia that you can use. There's certain airspace that you can use and cannot use and altitude blocks. There's uh, a certain place off the Florida-Georgia coast where we're allowed to do uh, choke point transit. So we, you know, shipping is, uh, merchant shipping is kind of kept out of the area and we can close down uh, waterways and make it look like we're, you know, tra- a strike group is transiting the Strait of Hormuz and, and do, you know, fast attack craft, uh, small boat tactics. And um, and so a lot of those things are, are a little bit, you know, you don't have to get into the mindset of the individual uh, opponent, right? It's it's the, the, the force and the capabilities of their diesel submarines or their patrol boats or their uh, MiG-29s if they've got whatever. So maybe it's a... The scenario is a little easier to use for the Navy than it is uh, for for Marine training. Well, the only thing you're trying to do with JTFX or whatever is just find out where the machine breaks, right? And so what that means is where do sorties start getting missed? Where do aviators cry uncle in terms of crew rest? What is the flight deck capable of in terms of manning 12 on and 12 off? You know, what is the ship able to do but also, in terms of catapults? Also the seams between warfare commanders. Yeah, that right? too, right? You so know, meanwhile, the, what's the back end doing between yeah. N2 and N6? And, you know, and then you add the, the shotgun, the alpha whiskey component. And, you know, so you find out where where those things are going to break by generating sorties, and those are predicated against a threat. So the threat moves around, and suddenly you have a no-notice you know, guy launched from Country X, you need to launch the Alert 5, and you weren't preparing, you know, planning on that. Or they're reconstituted, so now you got to exercise or execute a no-notice strike against Country Purple. So you keep going for this three-day surge X to find where it breaks. And so that's where the scenario is can be more basic than what Will is talking about, you know, in terms of... So, so when we go over the horizon, now it's just a matter of, okay, what is the threat? You know, and this is where his point is well taken in terms of the things you have to discover during workups about yourself to be effective. So, you know, what, what I know about what happened, for instance, in Bosnia which was a massive sortie generation thing for months on end. 
and really did test us is we had learned when we were about to reach dangerous levels during workups effectively, you know, because Cargo 4 pushed us in a way that really allowed us to discover these things. You know, so the fact that we went against Country Purple, which was basically VFC-12 and VF-43 out of Oceana, you know, with these sorties that would kind of be episodic. It wasn't like this Battle of Britain scenario because they couldn't generate that many sorties, which was fine because we're simulating countries that don't really have an air threat. Um, and the the ground scheme maneuver was very notional. There weren't really any troops on the ground where we were helping with close air support or anything like that. Um, but when we went to Bosnia um, and uh, we were doing a lot of close air support and a lot of, uh, of recce and that sort of thing, we were able to, that was sort of secondary. Um, that was just a mission. Just give us a mission and everything else is what is the sortie generation rate required? And we already knew what we were capable of because we had had an effective workups, right? Now, to Will's point, there are, depending on the scenario you get into, you know, so let's say you get into a, 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 a and this is the other thing, Will, to, to, again, because I think some of what you're saying here um, is we tend to um, go against uh, this 800-pound gorilla, um, which is unrealistic in terms of what you probably would face when you go on float or when you actually, uh, you know, go on cruise. Um, but the other thing, the other burden on the training environment or those who are responsible for unit training um, is they have to predict what the war is going to look like potentially, right? So there's only, you only have so much time, so much optar, so much budget. Um, you know, there, there's only so many things you can try to do. And you also can't break, just like during spring training, you don't want to hurt everybody, right? So sometimes if you get too realistic, you wind up breaking stuff and hurting people um, to the point where you now you go on deployment with fewer guys than you otherwise would have had and fewer... LVT-7s or whatever, Harriers or V-22s, right? Yeah, well, I mean, if I if I could kind of break in here, I mean, no one is saying that... Yes, you're the guest. Break in. Yeah, I mean, every every training event, there there's a certain level of artificiality that will be present in any training evolution or exercise, right? Because obviously we don't go to ranges, we don't fire against a live enemy, we don't, you know, we have certain constraints on training here back stateside that, you know, it's just a matter-of-fact way of life. The problem that I have, and, and of course, when you have a massive staff exercise, obviously the enemy will have to perform certain actions in order to drive certain reactions and decisions from the commander and from the staff to meet the core training obje- objectives of the staff, correct? I think we can we can both agree on that. Yeah, absolutely. The problem that I have is <clears throat> while, you know, the training objectives, you know, we may be meeting training objectives for, uh, you know, for example, the subordinate battalion, a.k.a., you know, perform defensive operations, perform, you know, deliberate attack, things like that. The issue breaks down when you look at the training objectives and the training that are really received by the junior officers and junior Marines on the staff, specifically in my realm, uh, the intelligence section. You know, <clears throat> one of the issues about being an intelligence officer in today's day and age, it's not necessarily like the, the – it, it's a different it's a different age. The amount of information that is, you know, available to a intelligence analyst or intelligence officer is it's immense. It's huge. You know, one of the biggest issues that you have is triaging the amount of information coming in, understanding the uh, resources that you have, contacting those, leveraging outside agencies, pulling down pieces of information, processing it, generating it, and, you know, disseminating it to the commanding officer and staff. 
these exercises don't allow, don't have the, you know, granularity of detail required for Marines to do that. There's not nearly enough raw information coming into the Information Operations Center or the, um, or the individual analysts. <clears throat> and furthermore, because everything is done in this sort of scripted scenario way, none of those Marines ever really get the chance to practice against a, uh, you know, leverage the real-world resources that are available to them for real-world scenarios until they actually go forward. So, yeah. for example, on my deployment, one of the um, one of the first things we had to learn was, you know, it sounds silly, but what are the, you know, websites, you know, what are the think tanks, what are the websites, what are the uh, Twitter handles, how do I use Google News, how do I do X, Y, Z, you know, what information is available to me so that I can understand just encyclopedic encyclopedic information on the environment, um, you know, what is the capital of this country, what is the capital of that country, all those information searches and, and resources that we had to use were things that we'd really never been forced to train with during any of our pre-deployment workout. Well, that's, that's, I, I love this line. You, you say, I worked with an analyst who could recite the Garnetian ground order of battle down to the battalion level, but did not know that North Korea and South Korea were different countries. This analyst was invaluable at MEFX-16. We'd want to leave him behind if we went to war. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, that's, no, and, and, that's a great, and, and great well, line. You, you bring up a very good point, which is, that, uh, you know, when I started my career as an intelligence officer in uh, 1987, deployed my first uh, six-month deployment in 1989 to the Mediterranean, we left Norfolk on an aircraft carrier, and all of the imagery we were going to have for the entire deployment we had in hard copy. Uh, so every, every overhead image of any target in any place in the Mediterranean, around the Mediterranean, Libya, Syria, Soviet kinds of uh, places, groups of forces, et cetera, uh, we had it on board or we were not going to have it. And so, uh, you know, pilots would come and we would might be doing contingency planning for something. And, and as, an, as an analyst or as an intelligence officer, I would have to say, I don't know to a lot of things. And so the challenge for my generation was often, find, you know, trying to get the, the intelligence system to give me a piece or two of information that, that my aviators would need to do their job. And, and nowadays, the challenge is the opposite, right? It's not getting, finding the one or two pieces of information that you really need. It's sifting out all the chaff from the volumes and volumes of, uh, you know, megabytes of information that can come to a, a big deck amphib or, a, or an aircraft carrier at sea and, and teaching your young Marines or young sailors um, well, this is the stuff you really need to focus on, and this is all the stuff that you've that you've got to ignore. Am I right? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, and I don't know if this, um, you know, how, how aware both of you are of uh, John Boyd, the OODA loop. So, um, very. It's kind of. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sure you both are, but you know, obviously, observe, or observe, orient, decide, act, and you know, it's a complex cycle with multiple feedback loops within the cycle, uh, where you're, you know judgment, expertise, training, all way into your ability to orient on the situation, right? So if you look at you look at the passage of time, you know, probably up until the nineteen mid nineteen eighties or maybe early nineteen nineties, the struggle for military organization was it was the decision and the action. The DNA were the hardest parts because there was so little information upon which to base that decision and that action you know, you you're you're making you're making decisions based off of one or two key pieces of information, right? I mean, look at Lee, or excuse me, not Lee, um, Grant. You know, he found, found Lee's 
plans and a cigar and a tent. And like that was the one piece of information that drove his decisions. Today, the issue that a military organization, in my opinion, has is it's the observation and the orientation. You know, there's so much information available. You're right. It's understanding, processing it. The decision and the action part, while still difficult, is you know, a smaller part of the overall effort today than maybe it was 20 or 30 years ago. And in my opinion, the exercises that we do and the training that we have don't necessarily prepare us for that reality. Hey, well, one, one last question. We, we're running out of time here, but I'm curious. I think I'm getting out of this conversation with you and out of your article that perhaps uh, for the training that you're describing the desire for, uh, that using real-world problems, countries, uh, enemies, adversaries for staff exercises, for non, uh, non-field training – uh, would be better, and perhaps the Treasure Coast scenario is good enough, or you know, with some work and some improvements, is good enough for the um, for the field training that you know subordinate units need. Where you're talking about a particular place, you've got a particular training range, you've got you need an adversary. The battalion landing team is going to go out there. This is the only beach available. We're going to put some op four out there, and this is kind of a basic scenario. But it's it sounds like really for to train that group, you know, those analysts of yours, um, that for a staff exercise, that's where you really need to to go into real world stuff because without it, you're just you don't have the depth uh, to to strain their minds. Right. I mean, look at the look at the requirement requirements for a you know uh, squad or a fire team or a rifleman individually, right? They have so many individual TNR tasks that are, you know, quick, definable, easy, easy things. You know, for example, uh, demonstrating that you know how to go, you know, condition four on a on a rifle, or you know, conducting like a fire team fire maneuver range, squad fire maneuver range. Uh, you know, all these you know operational, physical actions that need to occur that don't necessarily requ- require a scenario to drive those. I mean, you can you know, go to the range, conduct the range. You don't necessarily need to know that, for example, like the Garnetians are coming over the, you know, coming over the horizon, and so you're in a, you know, platoon defensive position here because, you know, X, Y, Z. Like none of those, um, none of those intelligent, intelligent, you know, none of the situations and the intelligence that drives the understanding of the situation is really necessary to drive the training conducted by the individual units. That being said, when you're on a staff that is required to understand the situation, analyze the situation, and come up with um, courses of action, absolutely, there's a, a more of a real-world scenario that's required to make that training worthwhile. Got it. All right, the uh, author is Captain Will McGee, USMC. The title of the article is The Exercise Has No Close. It's in the January issue of Proceedings. Will, thanks for being our guest uh, this week and uh, good luck to you going forward. Uh, appreciate very much uh, the time today and appreciate uh, what, what you're doing out there. Yeah, keep writing for proceedings. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. All right. So join us again next week for uh, our next episode of the Proceedings Podcast. And remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>